Chapter Sixteen of the Master Knot of Human Fate. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. The Master Knot of Human Fate by Ellis Meredith. Chapter Sixteen. All persons possessing any portion of power ought to be strongly and awfully impressed with an idea that they act in trust and that they are to account for their conduct in that trust to the one great master, author, and founder of society. Burke Adam found a note beside his plate in the morning. "'I will be back before five o'clock,' it said. "'I must think.' He did not sit down to the table she had spread for him, but called the dogs. Prince was missing, and this was a relief to him. Nothing could happen to her when Prince was with her. His first impulse was to follow her, but he repelled it, and he too sat down to think. Lassie whined uneasily, and he stroked her head absent-mindedly, and finally went out and tried to work. The hours dragged away, and by four o'clock he could stand it no longer. He went to the gateway. As he unfastened it, he saw her coming toward him, but she stopped and he joined her, and together they turned back to the boulder. He noticed that she was very white, and that her eyes looked as if she had not slept, but he only said, "'Have you thought?' "'Yes,' she answered. "'I have thought.' "'And decided?' "'No.' she said wearily. We must decide together. We are not children, Adam, nor are we in any way the prototypes of those first parents of ours. I think sometimes that ever since their day their children have been walking in a blind circle, eating not the fruit of knowledge, but of the knowledge of good and evil. And what do we know, you and I, after all these years? Are you sure what we ought to do? It is as if God had taken us into a conspiracy to renew the old or create a new scheme of existence. Possibly we are being tried, tested, to prove whether or not we have learned our lesson. We must be brave enough to think, not what is our will, but what is our duty. Think of the awful responsibility, whichever way we choose. "'I can't,' said Adam. "'I can't think of anything but you.' "'Nor I of aught but you,' she said, moving away, "'when you hold me so. "'But we must think.' "'I have,' answered Adam, gravely. "'All my life I have thought. "'I have wanted the perfect companionship "'of the one woman in all the world who could give it. I have always known she would come. I have wanted a home. I have wanted to see my sons and daughters grow up about me. I wanted to be a power for good in this world of which we are a part, and where we live for some good purpose, if there be any purpose in life. I have so conducted myself that I can look a good woman in the face and offer her my life, for whatever it is worth, 
without damning recollections to come between us. My children will have a clean heritage of blood and name. The family tree was scoffed at in America, but, thank God, mine was an oak that had weathered many a gale. Not very great folk, but honest, upright, fearless men and women, true to their king or their country and their faiths, true to their ideals, too, when their fellows were content with realities only. Any man who gives his children such a heritage as that can say with more truth than Napoleon said to his soldiers, Fifty centuries look down upon you. I wanted to make the world a little better for my life, and I wanted my children brought up to feel that their lives belonged first to their country, to live and die for her. I know, said Robin, softly. I used to think I would drape the flag over my baby's cradle and embroider it on his pinning blanket. We are probably a pair of sentimental fools, he went on, but I believe in sentiment. A man could not say this out loud because sentiment was supposed to be essentially womanish. How those old distinctions weary one, with their scientific data to prove that men surpass women in the senses of feeling and taste, while women have better sight and hearing, and so on through every conceivable maundering of the human brain, forever harping on differences and accentuating them, forever dwelling on sex distinctions, and never on a common humanity. It was a dreadfully scientific age, she assented, a generation fearfully and wonderfully given over to statistics. And yet how many dreamers there were! Yes, but in the twentieth century a young man dreamed dreams and saw visions at his own risk. While he dreamed of the brotherhood of man, his classmate with a corporation practice distanced him in the pursuit of position. While he led himself through the valley of the shadow of temptation, and feared no evil because of the Madonna vision in his soul, even the Madonnas preferred Lancelot and Tristram to Galahad. It wasn't an easy world for a man who wanted to keep faith with himself. It was a pinchbeck world of pretense and pull, that world that lies drowned out there. And yet I believe it was infinitely better than the lost Atlantis, better than the deluged planet of Noah, nobler and finer than the best civilization of which we have any trace. I never despaired of it, and yet as I grew older I wondered if I was not foolish and mistaken in daring to hope and to dream. I know, she said again, I think I did despair, for it seemed to me a dreadful, a terrible world. I used to wonder how conscientious men and women could bring other human beings into it, to be and to suffer and to faint in the frantic struggle for the unrealities that made us miserable or happy. Consider how paltry they were. If we built a new house, we were infinitely more concerned to see that the contractor used pressed brick than we were to see that the construction of our own characters was true. 
When we grew wealthy, we moved into houses of more stories. But how often did we say, Build thee more stately mansions, O my soul? I had as clean and strong a heritage as you, but a different one. It is no use to comfort oneself with nice little aphorisms about the needle's eye and saws about filthy lucre and telling God's estimate of money from the kind of people he gives it to. I tell you, biting poverty is a terrible thing, an unspeakable thing. It is a misfortune for a child to grow up under a sense of injustice. I used to have times of revolt against it all, when I hated with the blind, ferocious hate of a child, and I saw what David never saw, the righteous forsaken, and his seed begging, not bread, but a chance to earn his bread, and begging for it without being able to make just terms. I saw my home sold under the sheriff's hammer, and my parents struggle all their lives because of the lack of money, when they had everything else, nobility, character, truth, and education. My girlhood was a long series of going withouts. Finally, I married a man who promised me everything. Ah, well, when has the atom of Sodom failed to deceive the eye and undeceive the tongue? At least he did care for my voice, and through that I learned that all those years I had carried in my own throat the golden notes to have altered everything, and I sang a little gladness into my parents' lives before they ended, thank God. How did you come to sing an opera? Do not tell me if the recollection is unpleasant. I wondered then. Because after, after things went wrong, I could not take his money. I knew how to sing, and I loved it. But even there it was the same story of suspicion and jealousy, till it seemed to me that hate and fear ruled the world. I went to so many, many cities, but there was no city beautiful, and in all the country I found no Arcady. I had money then, it is true. But the jingle of the guinea doesn't help the artist who sings, or paints, or writes, or plays, because God has put it into his soul to do this thing. At least not after the very first, when it stands as a tangible assurance of success. The cities were cities of dreadful night and awful days. There were places that were not hives, but styes of human beings fighting for what they called life, to die never having lived. Sometimes I went into those jungles of civilization and sang to them. It was the only thing I could give them all. It was there I got my lesson. I had been singing All Tears when an old woman said in her feeble trembling voice, Ye man lois, young lady. To come to such a place and sing a him what's a load the world that he sent his only begotten son to it, for it's only great love that casts out fear, and this is a fearsome spot. Since then I haven't hated anything except wanton cruelty, and I know love rules when it is fearless, 
but that is very seldom. We were afraid to say, I love you, to anything more sensitive than a stray kitten, though the world has hungered and thirsted after the love we have feared to give, even to our own children. And yet, just the love a man and woman may bear each other, unconsciously, is enough to transform the earth. We have not been cross to each other. I do not believe we have spoken unkindly to anything this year. He drew her into his arms. Is it enough to regenerate the earth? And keep it regenerated? she echoed. Do you know? Do you remember telling me, long ago, of a story in which the woman said she had never seen but one man whose mother she would be willing to be? And you said you felt so about me? I was very proud of it then, but I am prouder of it now, since, feeling so, you cannot be unwilling to be the mother of my children. You are not, are you? She nestled a little closer to him and put her hand about his neck. He stooped and kissed it, and repeated his question. Unwilling? No, how could I be? I never dreaded maternity, except when, and that lasted such a little while. I do not dread it now. It seems to me it would be a blessed thing for us. But, Adam, Adam, tell me, for I have sat here all day asking myself whether it is a blessed thing to be born or a penalty that others pay. I think it would be a blessing to be your son, he said steadily. And I think it would be a benediction to be yours, she answered. But he would not be yours nor mine, but ours, plus everything in the past, verily heir of all the ages, and the ages were full of pain and sorrow. Oh, she said passionately, could you and I who love him so, this son who is only our wish, could you and I who know the weight of this weary world bind it upon the shoulders of our baby boy and send him staggering down the centuries, the new atlas of this old earth? They sat in silence for a long time. Then Adam said slowly, I don't know, dearest, but I do know that you are tired and hungry, and I am going to take you home. They rose and disappeared through the gateway together. End of chapter 16 Recording by Roger Moline